All right, good afternoon and welcome to this Friday Forum here at the Cato Institute. My name is Caleb Brown. I'm the Director of Multimedia here at Cato. Um, we're here to talk about something that I'm, I'm really glad we're talking about. It's a subject that is greatly misunderstood and that is North Korea. The book is Dear Reader, the Unauthorized Autobiography of Kim Jong-il, as dictated to Michael Malice. Um, I'm going to present just a few quick thoughts and then I'm going to let the author speak at length. I like this book for a couple of reasons. The first is that it is highly misleading. Uh, everything on the outside tells you that this will be a laugh riot, uh, that it includes all of the anecdotes about the younger Kim's prowess in sports, filmmaking, other arts, and to the extent that the book cover is a bit misleading, uh, I, will, I also understand that uh, you do not include perhaps the most notable anecdote about Kim Jong-il, or at least the, the most uh, popular one about his prowess at golf. That's correct. So it's, it's, it's that's, not that's not in the book. So to that extent, it is, uh, it is highly misleading. Another reason I like the book is that it is pretty much exactly what it promises to be, which is a fairly straightforward account of the life of Kim Jong-il as if he had written it himself, and in a sense, he did. Uh, but the reason I like this book the most is that the joke I felt was mostly on me uh, the dear reader, uh, in presenting this heroic, confident tale of uh, the dear leader, you just can't help but try to square that with the reality, the little slivers of reality that we see coming out of North Korea on an occasional basis, and putting the content or the putting that in the context of uh, of this book is a very effective uh, exercise in dark humor. And like I said, I felt that the joke, as I began reading more and more, I felt it was appropriate that the joke was in fact on me, the reader. So with that, we'll get to the introductions. Uh, Michael Malice has co-authored books with some prominent personalities, including UFC Hall of Famer Matt Hughes, comedian D.L. Hughley. He is recently a contributor to the very good book by John Durant, uh, The Paleo Manifesto. He's also the subject of a graphic novel by Harvey Picar of American Splendor fame entitled ego and hubris, and if you can earn that claim from Harvey Picar, that is fairly impressive. Uh, Doug Bandau is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute specializing in foreign policy and civil liberties. He worked as special assistant to President Reagan and editor of the political magazine Inquiry. He, like Michael, has visited North Korea. He writes regularly in leading publications and holds a JD from Stanford University. Uh, and now we'll get some discussion about the book, how it came to be from the dear writer. That's what he asked me to call him. You ruined it. Michael Malice. <laughs> so it's a huge honor to come here and speak at Cato. And, and I'm sure everyone comes up here and says that. But no one means it as much as me. Um, I was a, what do I do? Ah. Former Cato intern, uh, as you can see here, in 1997. Here, me and Christian Roby are looting the book room, proving the old libertarian adage that property is theft. <laughs> I did read every single book that I homesteaded, which is why I was the only intern not to have a copy of EcoScam. And I was actually Doug's intern uh, back in the day. That's us in uh, happier times, perhaps. Uh, so I look very forward to hearing his uh, praise of the book 
or <laughs> on the off chance that he makes the mistake of criticizing it to correct those thoughts. <laughs> and I wanted to share a personal moment uh, before I began. Uh, in March of 1997, uh, Julian, the late Julian Simon was going to be speaking at Cato. We were, all the interns went to the Senate offices to deliver videotapes. And when we came back, he was already speaking, so we had to wait outside in the hall. And when I came, I was seeing something on the video screen of his talk, and I couldn't reconcile what it was that I was seeing, because I saw this. And I'm looking at it, and I'm looking at it, and I turn to my fellow intern, and I go, does he have horns on his head? And yes, he had horns on his head, because whenever he began to talk, he would say, since environmentalists think I'm the devil, I might as well go all the way. And he would suction cup horns to his head which is why my hair uh, is like this today, in honor of uh, the late Julian Simon, who was a major influence. And now let me speak a bit about the book and how the process came to be. Um, North Korea, to me, and I think to most people would agree, is probably the lowest hanging fruit for the liberty movement. It is the least free nation on Earth. It is a huge symbol of the horrors of, cap of communism the horrors of dictatorship and totalitarianism. So I said, and we, we also, there's a lot of hand-wringing about how do we get people thinking about these ideas and uh, concerned about the ideas that we're so passionate about, the ideas of liberty. And everyone in America is a libertarian vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. So I went there uh, a couple of years back. Uh, this is me uh, with the great leader Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il on the right. And I guess I'm the Holy Ghost in this uh, trinity. And I bought armfuls of the propaganda. And usually when I write a book with a celebrity, I sit down, I work with them, we interview, we go back and forth. I did not have that privilege here. Uh, but there was no doubt. People asked me, how do you know what Kim Jong-il really thought about different issues? And the idea that people in North Korea don't know what he thought about everything is kind of crazy, because we know what he thought about magic tricks and gymnastics and cooking and architecture and cinema and, and opera and music and even dance notation, because he wrote about all these things. And in fact, when you live in that country, you have to know what he thinks about everything, because if you go against it, you're defying the state. And when you defy the state, it has very negative consequences. And I think one of the biggest problems I had and what I tried to set out to do with this book is to fight this idea that North Korea is a carnival. I met with a woman who runs a, a group fighting for human rights in North Korea, and she said this is a big problem they face. They face the idea that it's been kind of fetishized, that people look at it as a joke. And there's two ways to change that approach. You can either ignore it and try to have, move the conversation over here, or you could do what I did, which is you step into the spotlight where the attention is now, which is on Kim Jong-il the clown. And once you're in that spotlight is to change people's understanding of what he means and what he represents and what life is really like over there. Because Ayn Rand, when she spoke in, 19, in the 1950s in front of the House on American Activities Committee, she was being interviewed by this uh, congressman in Pennsylvania. And incredulously, he goes, you know, I know Russians. Don't they visit their mothers-in-law? Don't they have, you know, picnics, and she goes, you have to understand it's almost completely impossible for free people to know what it's like to live under a totalitarian dictatorship. And in a way, it's a good thing that you don't know. Yes, they visit their mothers-in-law, but they're living in complete terror from morning to night, and at night you're waiting for the doorbell to ring, where anyone can do anything to you, where human life means nothing and you know it. And that's something else that I think most people in the West don't understand. North Koreans increasingly are aware of just how bad they have it. And in fact, the propaganda has changed. 
The propaganda used to be the whole world envies us. We have it so great. And as more and more people went to China and to the South and word got back, because it's very hard to fight word of mouth, now the propaganda is, yes, we're poor, but we're building happier tomorrow. It's very easy to convince the people who have no access to the outside world that they're wealthy and happy. It's very difficult to convince the people that they have more food on their plate than they did a year ago or that their children aren't hungry. Uh, and the way they fight these things are just so tragic. For example, when the famine first started hitting in the 90s, Kim Jong-il launched a campaign that was called Let's Eat Two Meals a Day Instead of Three. Because the idea is if you're less hungry, then you won't need as much food. It's just a matter of willpower. And Yes, we understand it's oppressive, but we don't understand just how oppressive it is. For example, everyone in the whole country once a week has to engage in a criticism session where you get up and you say what you did wrong this week, and then your neighbors or your colleagues have to get up and denounce you. And this happens every week for everyone in the entire country. Everyone is always watching each other. There's never a moment of peace. So yes, when they repeat these absurd Kim Jong-il stories or they smile and nod, uh, they have to do it because they have guns to their head. It's not like a Democrat versus Republican thing where I'm putting my point of view across, you're putting your view you across. You have to parrot the views of the regime. And if there's any chance that you're saying something that can be regarded as wrong, there will be very big consequences. And North Korea does something else that's unique and, and particularly reprehensible. You know, Rick Santorum, who's a wonderful person that everyone loves, uh, is fond of saying that the family is the basic unit of society. Well, I don't know what he thinks the word unit means, but in my dictionary, unit is that which cannot be reduced any further. And in North Korea, they take this seriously. The family is the basic unit of society in North Korea, so that when you are punished for a crime, they punish your entire family. In fact, they come for you in the middle of the night, three generations are taken to the camps, and you're never sure who it was that got your whole family sent there. And sometimes people even get released from these camps. It's, it's not always a death sentence, but that is what it's like, you know, living in a nation where the family is the basic unit of society. So one of the things I tried to do with this book uh, was to maintain his tone, but at the same time laying bare in a paddle, palatable way in the kind of book you can read on the plane or a book you can read on a train, what their history was, what their worldview is like. They're not crazy in any sense. They have an internal logic of their own. And for a nation that's supposedly so crazy and so suicidal, somehow they've managed to outlast all these other nations. So clearly they're doing something right. In the 90s when the famine hit, rather than having the UN come in and, and send people food, they were just shown around to the best places and everything looked great. And Kim Jong-il chose to have 10% of his nation starve rather than allow the UN to send food. And he recognized this. He said, if we let the people fend for themselves, they won't need the government, so we can't have that happen. So anytime you see these you know, articles about Dennis Rodman, or uh, there was a piece in, I think it was The Guardian, where they referred to Kim Jong-un's mini-skirted robot army about the women you know, marching in lockstep in parades, they're denying the humanity of these 24 million people who are suffering enormously. Uh, they are treating it as a carnival when it's not a carnival, it's a bloodbath. Uh, I always compare Kim Jong-il to the Batman villain, the Joker, where everyone sees the clown, but no one's mentioning the bodies behind him. So it was my hope in writing this book to have, yes, a very kind of humorous and tongue-in-cheek approach as a way to get people interested in the subject. I think most people who are interested in liberty are interested in the subject. And once they start to realize what it's like that's going on over there, they start to wonder how it is they could have ever found any aspect of the situation humorous in the slightest. Uh, so 
thank you, and I'll be glad to answer any questions you might have later. Doug? Well, I think Michael's come up with a very interesting way to present uh, North Korea. I mean, it is an extraordinarily awful place, and it really poses, I think, two different challenges. One is a security challenge. The security challenge is not particularly great for the United States. That is, we are the superpower. One of our carrier groups could wipe out the country if we wanted to wipe out its military assets. Nevertheless, it creates extraordinary tensions within the region. It has an advanced conventional forces that could pour over the border into South Korea. They wouldn't get terribly far, but they would get to Seoul and turn a city of about 12 million people to ashes. They create tensions with uh, you know, Japanese. They bring in the Chinese. I mean, it, you know, so it creates a lot of problems that way. And the, the nuclear issue is one which they've used very effectively. And I think it's also a kind of proof of how this is not, you know, people I would talk to would think that Kim Jong-il must be nuts or crazy. And the answer is no. He's actually used a very weak hand very, very well. You know, this is a country that gets on the front pages of every newspaper in the world. It's a country that can kind of get people to show up on its doorstep offering it money and kind of you know, pay attention to it in a way that one would normally not pay attention to such a country. So it's got that kind of security challenge in terms of what do we do, what do the South Koreans do, what do the Japanese do, and increasingly what do the Chinese do? Because China, China stands behind them, nevertheless it's a real problem for China as well. So that's one set of issues, but the humanitarian set of issues I think is the other one. I mean this really is the most monstrously you know, misgoverned place on earth. Uh, I mean, if you go there, it, everything is weird. I mean, I've told people it's kind of this parallel universe. You show up at an airport without airplanes. You're on roads without cars. They have more today. I was there about 20 years ago. You know, you have streets without street signs. I mean, everything was just kind of strange. You know, you walk into the maternity hospital and there are four kids in, you know, with 60 bassinets and you know, all the unplugged electronic equipment. I mean, everything was just surreal. But, I mean, you have a place that is just horrendous in terms of the labor camps. We think 150,000 or more. I mean, there's actually some evidence that, that those numbers may be down. We think people may simply have died. I mean, you actually have satellite imagery of what appear to be labor camps that have had a lot of buildings taken down. It is unlikely all those people were released into society. Very many, you know, many of them, thousands by the thousands, could very well have died. I mean, this is a system where you had mass starvation in the late 1990s, and no one in Pyongyang, as far as we can tell, was very concerned about it. Or if they were, they were certainly not in a position to verbalize that concern. I mean, this is not a society where you disagree with the leadership. It's always had very heavy micromanagement from the top down, whether it be Kim Il-sung or Kim Jong-il. Presumably the same with Kim Jong-un, though we don't know an awful lot, I think, how it operates today. Indeed, the, the place is so awful that the United Nations, of all things, put out a report last month of you know, hundreds of pages of documentation of the human rights abuses in North Korea. Very rarely does the UN do this because its Human Rights Council is filled with human rights abusers. So it's always very embarrassing to have people on your Human Rights Council and you know, say nasty things about them. So for the most part, the UN kind of jumps around this stuff and doesn't say an awful lot. The report they put out on North Korea was extraordinary. And, I mean, it just gives, I think, a sense of the horror of the place that the U.N. would get involved and that other countries that normally would stand in the way would allow it to happen. And if you're interested in a very straightforward but horrendous account of what goes on there, you can go to the United Nations Human Rights Council. You can find the report. The, you know, the summary is around 30 or 40 pages. The full backup is something like 300 pages. It's extraordinary. And the question is what to do about it. We have no good answers here, but I do think that it's, it's important. It is a place that easily gets caricatured because it is strange. That in kind of normal human behavior, it looks very weird. 
And, the, and I think the problem with that, I think Michael's absolutely right, is that if you focus on the weirdness, you miss the horror you know, behind it. And today, we're not sure what's going on. I think there's probably a certain amount of instability in the leadership. Uh, Kim Jong-un offed his uncle back in December, who was one of the supposed regents. His aunt has not been seen uh, for several months. She was in ill health. She may be dead as well. I mean, this is a man who had no compunction about ordering the execution of his uncle, who was supposed to be one of the, the folks around him kind of leading him forward. You know, this is a place everyone plays for keeps. You don't want to be on the losing end of political struggles there. And it's very divided in terms of class, you know, sex. I mean, the, the idea of sending three generations off, and that is the punishment. I mean, you'll take grandkids through grandparents. They all go to the camps. But they divide people based upon kind of classification in terms of whether you view it as loyal in the middle are disloyal, and the people disloyal don't get fed, are the ones who are most vulnerable to everything. Utterly hideous place, and I think it's something where we have to you know, grapple with the reality and should not lose ourselves in the kind of what seemed to be the comedy of the place, because the comedy really takes away from uh, you know, the attention to what is the basic issue for anyone who's a good human person in terms of what do you do about a system like this. Thank you, Doug. I, I have a couple of questions, and then we're going to open it up, up to you. There's a, there are a couple of moments in the book that uh, sort of stop you dead. And one of them is when uh, Kim Jong-il, who was charged with revitalizing arts in, in North Korea, is sitting with his, the people who have been given this uh, opportunity to watch all these foreign films and sort of help revitalize the film industry in North Korea. And they're talking about aesthetics. They're talking about uh, European directors, uh, American directors, and uh, Kim Jong-il... Uh, as you tell it, gets very upset that, one, that these people are not focused on the political messages within the films that they're going to be uh, asked to make, but also that they don't sound like they have read Prime Minister Kim Il-sung's thoughts on art. Right. And he's, he says, I had to suppress my rage right. in order to do that. Well, the, the ruling philosophy of, of North Korea is what they call the Juche idea, which... Uh, Mean, basically what it means in practice is that which Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung like. Uh, and as any kind of artist, you have to kind of intuit what that would mean. Otherwise, it would have very bad consequences. Historically, artists in uh, dictatorships don't fare that well unless they're towing the party line. And it's very tricky because if you're writing anything with nuance, it could be interpreted badly and there, go, there goes your livelihood. So he was charged with taking over the arts and, and, and he cre recreated their opera. And there's you know, five revolutionary operas, the most important of which has the lovely title Sea of Blood. Uh, which gets its name because the Jap bastards, as they refer to them, turned a northern Korean town into a sea of blood, and a widow whose children were killed by the Japanese joined the party and, and brought forth revolution. So, you know, they have very few foreign, anything foreign to them, you know, Korea as a whole is very xenophobic. Anything foreign to them is anathema. Uh, there's a few Western books that the guides are allowed to read, Jane Eyre, uh, Jenny Gerhardt, and they're allowed to watch Titanic. Um, the fact that Titanic was launched the same day that Kim Il-sung was born, I guess is a funny little irony in the fact that this is a symbol of capitalism, you know, capitalism causes shipwrecks. Um, but yeah, they very much take their art seriously like most dictatorships and it's mind numbing and tedious and horrible. And you can imagine what it's like where even your leisure time is being devoted to furthering the personality cult. Okay, now the, the presentation of this book is humor as we've noted many times, but in terms of the actual narrative uh, structure of it. What did you rely on from DPRK 
specifically, and what other writings did you rely on to put this together? Right, I read 660 books as reference for this. So I read the entire Western Library and you know a couple dozen of books from, from North Korea because Kim Jong-il was born in World War II. He died in 2011. So his life perfectly maps out to a de facto history of North Korea as a country. And since he's always there where anything important happens, miraculously, uh, you get the North Korean perspective on anything as he talks about uh, his life. Um, so, and the, the, one of the big surprises to me while writing the book is they address the American criticism. So any criticism of North Korea, I have him spell out, this is the American perspective and this is why it's wrong. Of course, the answers are sometimes chillingly absurd. When we attack them for having concentration camps, they explain, this is what they told the UN, we don't use the term concentration camp and therefore we don't have any here. Um, so, you know, th this is, it's, it's funny and like, I, I, how is this even being presented on Earth in this day and age. All right, uh, I think we have some microphones here handy. All right, so any questions right here? Sir, uh, how accurate would it be to characterize this regime as a throwback to uh, divine right of kings like Louis XIV or an Egyptian pharaoh? That's, that's a great question. It's, it's worse than divine right of kings because even a divine monarch was somewhat fallible. Uh, and, and, you know, he had a wife and he had kids, right, a divine monarch. Whereas in this case... Uh, no one until recently with Kim Jong-un ever knew if Kim Jong-il or Kim Il-sung were married or had children. They're presented as these chase above the fray kind of types. And I met a refugee and I was talking to her about what it's like, you know, being there. And she said, I honestly believed that if Kim Jong-il wrote his name in a piece of paper, that autograph could lift up and, and fly away. So a lot of the, the Christian Jesus stories are presented there. Kim Il-sung is presented as being able to walk on water and as, tele as being able to teleport. So it's, it's far past divine right of kings. Uh, and, and it's also presented that they're the only people who have any intelligence in the entire country. You know, he'll meet with a group of architects and they won't be able to solve a problem and he'll solve it in seconds. And it's like, well, why are they architects then? Uh, so to present him, uh, Kim Jong-il or Kim Il-sung is great. He has to effectively present everyone else as being completely incompetent in their job. And the other point, I mean, even under divine right of kings, in theory, the king was accountable to God. There is no God to which these are accountable. I mean, they are God. And I think that, that, that this system itself is, the, is exalted as opposed to anything beyond it. Right here. Yes, uh, Mr. Van Dow, Mr. Malice, I think actually this would probably be answered by either of you. Um, I've had a great deal of friends who've actually traveled to North Korea, and they say, oh, yeah, it's not that bad a place. It's actually okay. And um, I'm trying to understand why uh, your perception that this is such a horrible, um, chaotic nation, we term it the hermit kingdom, why it receives a great deal more attention than other other places of torment. And I'm thinking Togo, Benin, Guinea-Bissau, Philippines, um, that sure. this is such an era, this area is so mystifying to us, it's almost comical, but we don't pay attention to other places dealing with as great um, as great terror, why um, North Korea receives such attention. And, um, none, of these other, none of these other nations you mentioned are anything any close to as great a terror as this. And the fact that this has been going on for seven decades, and it's, most of this has been known for a very long time, uh, the fact that you know, this is a nation without the internet, a nation where people aren't allowed to leave, where people aren't allowed to read foreign publications. You know, many of these dictatorships, there's someone in Eastern Europe where there's also a giant golden statue. They're still allowed to read things and you, you have, they have comedy or, or 
some sense of freedom. This is a nation where every moment of your life is accounted for by the state. So it's something unprecedented. Even Khrushchev, you know, in the 50s was talking about how absolutely bonkers they are. So it, it's not really fair, I think, to compare it to, let's say, the Philippines or Bali or something like that. The other thing is that there's a security issue that the others don't bring up. That is, you know, Kim Il-sung started a war in which two or three million Koreans ended up dead after three years, and it brought in China as well as the United States, so it created great power conflict, as well as the Soviet Union in a supportive role. I mean, the North Koreans have maintained an advanced conventional force basically 25 miles from the capital of Seoul, you know, for decades, which I think they would lose a war, but the, any, any conflict would be horrendous and the losses would be utterly horrendous. And none of the other countries you mentioned are trying to build nuclear weapons. You know, so the North Korea is kind of positioned, you know, kind of in terms of security way, as well as the, the simple fact that the U.S. is allied with South Korea. So what happens with North Korea versus South Korea immediately brings America in, in a way that those other countries don't have that great power context. And none of them are allied with a country like China. So really, North Korea brings together a security dimension and a humanitarian dimension. And I think that probably makes it unique among the countries I can think of. I'm Connor Ryan. I'm also a Cato intern. So uh, uh, let's just hope one day I can hopefully do something like this. Um, Start with the hair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have two questions. One, the leader's thoughts on everything. You said from magic to arts. Does he really just get up and just say, today I'll think about arts. And then he goes and just writes like a uh, an essay on arts. So there has to be some things he hasn't thought of. And then it would come to his attention or like perhaps someone would be like, hey, look, you need to put out, you know. A no one's ball. telling him you need anything, I promise you. Sure. Uh, but I, I, his thoughts on everything, like honestly, is he has to think of everything to make sure he's not, uh, there's no holes in his philosophy. And it is, does his philosophy follow the same bit of logic? Are there any things that contradict each other oh. openly? And then um, the next one is the next 20 years. What can we expect from the North Okay, th th there's, a, there's a few questions there. First of all, every, he, uh, he's only spoken once in public. Kim Jong-il only said one sentence ever in public, glory to the heroic people's revolutionary army. So he was a kind of a recluse, unlike his father, who was really much a man of the people. Um, we know his views on everything because everything there is a function of the state and the state is being managed at the top. So you know, you know, when they, Americans like to laugh at the story that Kim Jong-il claims to have invented the hamburger, uh, he never claimed to have invented the hamburger. He claimed to have introduced the hamburger to North Korea, which I'm certain is true because anything that is introduced to North Korea is done only by the leader's pleasure. So as for the next 20 years, I, I, I would very much love to hear Doug's thoughts on this. I think there's absolutely no hope because even if the regime collapsed tomorrow, the, the metaphor I always used is of the former slaves in the South after the Civil War, where they have decades of basically hell on earth. These people have never seen a computer. They have no knowledge of history. They're not even talk, taught about Hiroshima because the idea that Japan and America were at odds doesn't make sense to their narrative. So they have very little skills. It's not an arable area either. It's largely mountainous. So there's no silver lining on this cloud, in my opinion. I think that when, when he thinks about things and talks about things, the emphasis is politics. I mean, these people are very regime-oriented. How do you preserve the regime? So, I mean, you know, how do you use the arts for the regime? How do you use the media for the regime? So I think all of these things are, I mean, and there's an understanding. They're not stupid. I mean, they recognize, I mean, China has spent years trying to encourage them to adopt economic reforms and to move in a more liberal direction. And they've you know, absolutely not. I mean, Kim Jong-il would visit China and China would run him around to Shanghai and all sorts of stuff and say, look at this. I mean, he's not a stupid man. People have met him <laughs> and have talked to him. 
but I think they're very concerned about the kind of survival of the regime. And so all of these thoughts tend to focus on that, very, you know, in terms of calculating of how do you preserve the regime. Uh, look, the next 20 years uh, could be uh, very ugly. I mean, the, if you're a North Korean, I don't see an awful lot of hope. I mean, the range is, assume the regime is fairly stable. Uh, you know, Kim Il-sung lived to like 83. Uh, you know, Kim Jong-il, I think, was 67. Uh, you know, Kim Jong-un, we think, is probably 31. Okay, so if he lives as long as his father, that'd be 36 years. I mean, if you assume he's in control, I mean, that's, a, you, know, you know, before you'd see much change in that regime. Then the, well, is there a Gorbachev sitting around somewhere at the table in Pyongyang? I suppose, but I have trouble imagining how he or she would assert themselves in that kind of a system. I mean, there's no safety net. Even the Soviet Union, by the end, you know, they didn't kill you off. That was the change from Stalin to Khrushchev, is when Khrushchev was challenged, you know, the first time people thought he was going to execute them. He said, no, we're done with that. Well, that, when they're not done with that in North Korea. I mean, you execute your uncle if you think it's necessary. So it's hard to see internal kind of reform absent regime collapse. Right. Now, regime collapse could be very, very ugly. It could be militarized. It could be factionalized. I mean, this is a military where they don't have joint maneuvers because they want to make sure, you know, special forces are separate from your regular units. You don't want to have them be, gang up on you. You always want to have a force you can call upon. You know, the major hope would be China, as in, I mean, China has the most influence. It's possible that China has security and intelligence assets in the country. I don't know. It wouldn't be easy, but it's possible. Uh, but China at the moment doesn't want chaos. It doesn't want refugees. And it doesn't want a united Korea allied with America and American troops on its border. So China basically prefers stability, even if it's ugly, than doing anything else. The UN report, I mean, it was so odious, so incredible. But China denounced the report. Now, part of that is because China does, is very sensitive on human rights issues. But even that was not something that China could abide kind of letting go with North Korea. And the Chinese are angry with the North Koreans because of all the provocations. This creates instability, but they still haven't moved against them. And, and Michael's absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the status of the North Korean people, I mean, the refugees who've come across, who almost certainly the most motivated, I mean, have a real hard time in South Korea. They've spent their lives in a place where everything is programmed and planned out for them. And the South Koreans are very scared about the idea of reunification. They watched German reunification and realized, you know, West Germany's a lot richer than us, and East Germany was a lot richer than North Korea. Oh, my goodness, the cost. I mean, the moment you get out of Pyongyang, everything's a disaster. I mean, there's no infrastructure. And, and, uh, so, so, boy, I mean, it's, it's a very tragic place. I think if the, if the regime comes down, you could have chaos. You could have the Chinese intervene in, to get nuclear weapons and prevent refugees going north. You'd have South Korea wanting to get involved for reunification. There could be bloodshed. I mean, it's... Oh boy. And the thing to remember is North Korea's, the, the regime, are very, very aware of what happens when regimes go down, and that's the leaders on top of personally murdered. If you look at uh, Iraq, if you look at Libya, and Kim Jong-il... The Ceausescu. Yeah, Kim Jong-il had the tape of the Ceausescu's in Romania, who they referred to themselves as the leader. Uh, he played that tape for the entire leadership in North Korea every single day, and he said, if the people rise up, this will happen to you. He did the hand motion too. Uh, so they know that if they go down, they are personally going to be killed. And that is a very big incentive to maintain re regime stability. So part of, part of your project here is to uh, take a lot of the humor out of... Uh, well, I, a lot of the mysticism out. Mysticism. Yeah. But, but also, I mean, at least I felt I became increasingly depressed as I was reading the book. <laughs> Good. But, uh, and I think that's 
entirely appropriate. But right. when you see when you see representations of Kim Jong Il in popular culture from like Team America, right. Thirty Rock had an extended uh, plot line in which uh, Jack Donaghy's wife Avery was sort of commandeered to be a newscaster, and she says something to the effect of, "In other news today, you've had enough to eat." Right, right. It's and, a, it, and it's it's just, but it, but that's the presentation, and people do laugh at it. People do think it's very funny. Right. So the book starts off like a fairy tale, and it ends like a murder mystery. You know, so that's the transition I, I take the reader on, uh, the dear reader on, rather I should say. Um, I, I think the, the the crazier they seem, the easier it is to make a joke at their expense, and by reading this book, everyone will realize they're not crazy in the slightest. They are, know what they're doing. They play the West like a fiddle, and the regime knows how to run the country. And when you realize that this is a cold-blooded logic to their actions, then all the humor uh, goes away, and Dennis Rodman is regarded as something to be disgusted at rather than something to roll your eyes at. Right here, in the front row. Hi. Uh, can you give us a little bit of history? How did this come about? How did this... How did, how did how did uh, Kim Jong-il and his father create this monstrosity? There's this great book called Dear Reader. Uh, <laughs> uh, but briefly, uh, Kim Il-sung was installed as a puppet by Stalin You know, after World War II. The, the Russians had the North, the U.S. had the South. We installed Sigmund Rhee, who's hardly a nice guy. And they thought he'd be malleable, and Kim Il-sung was hardly malleable. And in fact, North Korea, in, in almost every sense, is far closer now to fascist uh, than it is to communist. And I have Kim Jong-il in the book say, the, dear, the leader has nothing to do with the Fuhrer, but leader is what Mussolini was called in Italy. You know, the xenophobia, the uh, focus on racial purity, the concentration camps, you know, the absolute totalitarian control of the arts. Uh, in almost every sense, it's, it's much more closer to fascism than it is to... Um, uh, and the militarization, then, then it's the communism. I mean, Kim Il-sung did have legitimate revolutionary credentials in the sense that he was a guerrilla leader against the Japanese, not nearly as important as he presented it. Right. Nevertheless, he was a figure. So when the, North, when the Russians looked around for what they thought would be their guy, they chose him. I mean, they turned out he was extraordinarily ruthless. Over the years, right. you know, he took out the pro-Russian faction, he took out the pro-Chinese faction. You know, the Chinese, <laughs> even though they saved his bacon, you know, in, in the war, he always downplayed their role. Oh, yes. I mean, very, very smart political operator. And it looks like the grandson may very well be as good. Yeah, I was just wondering uh, what the kind of structure and hierarchy of the leadership outside of, you know, Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung um, kind of looks like as far as, I mean, it can't be a traditional, you know, government as we see it. Like, at what point... The public stops here, and this becomes the leadership where everything is kind of controlled. Well, they have. This is something you bring up. Something that's really interesting. They have something called Sungbun, which is a caste system. Now, North Korea, what they did starting in the fifties, there were several iterations of this. My favorite of which is called the Understanding People Project, because who could be against understanding people? They interviewed every single person in the country, and they basically assigned them a credit score based on how loyal they are to the regime, based on their jobs, what their family was doing, and this credit score determines not only what jobs you have, whether you go to college and who you marry, but even where you live. So the un uh, the untrustworthy people were the Northeast, which were denied food during the famine. So it's very, very localized, and it's also very genetic. So you have Pyongyang, where all the trusted people live, and then in the middle of Pyongyang, you kind of have this walled-off area where the really trusted people are. So it's very, very top-down, regimented, and you're going to play by the rules, or else your whole family is going to suffer the worst possible consequences. And the leader decides, I mean, in terms of kind of who else the leaders are. I mean, they have various leadership structures. They have the party, they have the military, they have the National Defense Commission. 
The party mattered more under Kim Il-sung. Kim Jong-il moved to a military first policy, shifted some functions to the National Defense Commission. Uh, yeah, I mean, it looks like they've tried to revive the party some under Kim Jong-un, though there's some question about whether or not the execution of Jong may have been at the behest of the military. So the military still plays a significant role. All of these, I mean, they have a parliament that doesn't matter. It's, you know, kind of honorific. All of these other institutions revolve around the top leader who basically decides what is important and where the power goes. Um, my question is, given that pretty much the entire population is dependent on the state simply to survive on a day-by-day -day basis. That's, true. Well, That's no longer the case, but go ahead. Okay. Um, was, how catastrophic would reunification be, and does that change the calculus on whether it's worth it as a policy goal or not? I've never heard of any revolution not really being catastrophic, you know what I mean, unless it's kind of this Arab Spring sort of thing. Um, the nation is no longer dependent on the government. What they're having now increasingly is because they, they couldn't feed the people during the, the, the 90s famine, what they termed the arduous march. They had these little markets and there's a lot of people going from North Korea to China and doing trade there. And the North Korean state doesn't really know how to grapple with this. You know, sometimes they shut them down. Sometimes they let them uh, operate because this is a way of getting the people fed, but it's also a problem for them for losing control. So this is the big kind of change in North Korea in the last 10 years. It's this rise of this, I guess you would call it a middle class, where you have people selling with each other outside the auspices of the state and getting food um, through market mechanisms. And this has great hope because when you can't feed the police, they're very bribable, which is a very good thing in terms of bringing down a regime from our perspective. I mean, a few years ago, they had a currency kind of, they switched currencies, basically. And there, one theory of that is they wanted to take power out of the private uh, you know, entrepreneurs because people had saved up money and they saved up the old currency. So what you did is you had a limit. You could only turn in you know, 50,000 won or whatever it was. So you had people who had massive stockpiles who basically all of it was suddenly wiped out. You know, the regime presented it as, oh, it was a mistake of this guy and we executed him. But a lot of people are much more suspicious and think that it was a conscious attack upon this kind of new power source, which are all of the kind of entrepreneurs, black market operators, and others. I don't think reunification would be catastrophic in the sense that it would be a boon for the North Koreans. <laughs> it would just be extraordinarily difficult on all sides. Very, very expensive for South Korea, very hard on North Koreans who have no experience with any kind of a political or social system, and try to manage knitting together the economies, the political systems, the social systems. I mean, you know, even the dialect is different. I mean, North and South can understand each other, but there are differences in language that have grown up. Putting that together, I mean, you know, most East Germans watched West German TV. They knew what West Germany was. You, I mean, you've had a lot more contact over the years and smuggled in videos and stuff, but it's still North Koreans don't know what South Korea is. I mean, right. it, putting those places together would be very hard. In fact, what most refugees are, are shocked to learn is that Kim Il-sung started the Korean War because the big lie that they're told is that the U.S. at the title won the books, U.S. imperialists started the Korean War. And when they find this out, it would be kind of like us finding out that FDR attacked the Japanese at uh, Pearl Harbor. So they've been fed so many lies for so long. It's In fact, when I was talking to a refugee and I was asking her some questions, she knew that I knew more about North Korea than she did. She asked me, like, did Kim Jong-il really kill Kim Il-sung? Like, they have no ability to discern between what's real and what's not because everything they've been told is just completely fantastical, not even logical on its own terms. I heard that people are forced to have the TV on 24 hours no, a day. there's no electricity. If you look at this NASA map, you can see the Korean peninsula and the north part is black as night. It looks like the ocean. So I think you're thinking of 1984, but they, they, most people don't have TV. 
Oh, okay. I was going to ask what they put on TV, but well, obviously they don't know. It, it's movies about the leader, and it's the news about how everything's great and how the leader's doing great things, and then there's another movie about the leader. And how many children do most people have? Do they have, like, birth control? and? They have birth control in that there's a, when you don't have access to food, so it's this kind of, you know, very dark biological sense of birth control. And one of the worst parts of North Korea is that all the children are, you know, frequently malnourished, and on average they're four inches shorter. It's either four or six shorter than the South Koreans, who obviously have the same genetic stock. Right here. Yes. Uh, there was, uh, at least in public press, some notion that... Uh, he was educated, in, at least in part, in, in Switzerland. Right. Is that like a Jerry Springer joke, or is it true? No, what Kim Jong-un was educated abroad. That's absolutely true. And Kim Jong-il, you know, they offered him to send it to Moscow University, and he very... Pro well, it's funny reading these books because the stories change over time. It's kind of like 1984. So in an early book, it'll say he was offered to go to Moscow University, and he said, no, I'm studying in Kim Il-sung University in Pyongyang. And in a later book, it'll say he was offered to study at a foreign university. So the facts and the data fall away down the memory hall as time changes, and they don't, you know, many of the stories will say something like Kim Il-sung was in a foreign country visiting the funeral of its president. They never have details. And in fact, when I spoke to refugees, they don't have an awareness of the outside world. They're not taught geography. They know about China, Japan, the U.S., uh, and, and maybe one or two others, Russia, but they're not really taught, you know, like a world map and what's going on in the rest of the world. They're able to discern the factual basis. Right, of, exactly. Of of this. So it's just... Yeah, right. Going to prep school did not turn him into a liberal. He reportedly liked the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan, but that did not make him a humanitarian, right. unfortunately. Right, that's, that's fair. All right, uh, I neglected to uh, say earlier, would you please identify yourselves and any affiliation oh. you would like us to make note of? Hayden Wetzel? I'm Hayden Wetzel. Um, it, it always seems that the only country that has any real influence over North Korea is China. Do you foresee any possibility that the Chinese would become so um, frustrated with this that they would simply install a puppet government there? Well, they're, they're not. A, so the North Korean, my, I've, I was born in the former Soviet Union and had a friend who grew up in Leningrad. And when he was seeing pictures of my trip to Pyongyang, it was blowing his mind because he's like, this is just like Russia, but there's Asian people walking on the streets, the architecture, the clothing, everything about that. So they have a very Soviet uh, aspect to their culture. And one of the things that Mr. Putin is showing us all about Soviet culture is they love defiance. So when the Chinese are telling North Korea, you should do A, B, and C, they love being in a position to be like, no, what are you going to do about it? And the idea that you can take out a regime easily, even if you're China, where a huge percentage of the infrastructure is underground, where they've been preparing for this bunker mentality for decades, it's, it would be so difficult. And China is often telling them, calm down, you know, rein it in. And that's the reason why Kim Jong-un is in charge. His eldest brother was slated to take over. And he told Kim Jong-il, we should be more like Beijing. And Kim Jong-il told him, if you want openness, open a window. Uh, so this was exactly why they chose Jong-un over uh, his eldest brother. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, the only way to take out the regime that China, the, the China's primary influence would be to cut off uh, oil and cut off food. Well, that's an indirect pressure point. I mean, and the, the problem from China's standpoint is that doesn't give you the con that control. What it does is give you chaos. That if the North says, you know, forget it, and it falls apart, then China fears refugees, conflict, loose nuclear weapons, you know, all sorts of things. So far, China's simply not willing to take that risk. I mean, I think we could do a better presentation in terms of how we'd be willing to accommodate their concerns, among other things, reunification, no U.S. troops, 
refugees, we help pay for them. I mean, there are a lot of things we might offer China, but it's very tough from China's standpoint. Over the years, North Korea was very effective playing the Soviet Union versus China, always independent. They are not pro-Chinese. I mean, it's a, a marriage of convenience. Chinese don't like them. They don't like the Chinese, but they're kind of stuck with each other. And under the circumstances, I don't think that's going to change. Right back here. Thank you. Um, Pat Spann, just myself. Um, I'm a little curious, given the size, especially their military and obviously their internal service, um, you know, police and internal service, how do, is this like um, um, inherited jobs? Is this, is this one of the casts? Is the, because it seems like over the generations now, you, you, you know, you need some sort of pool to grow your, uh, or to keep your, to maintain your, uh, your military and your internal service and your police and well, you know, every, how do they? How do they, is, it, is, it, is that a cast unto itself? Well, everyone wants to be in the military, of course, because under Kim Mil, Kim Jong Il's philosophy, which was called Sungun, which means military first, it also meant the military eats first. What's unique or at least interesting about North Korea is that the military there is does all the construction. So they're not just sitting around waiting for a war to happen. They're the ones putting up these buildings, but they don't have gasoline, so they're doing it very manually. So joining the military is basically the aspiration of everyone. Uh, you do have to have somewhat of a good background. And in fact, there's many stories in the literature. They deny this whole caste system, of course, because it's a communist nation. We don't have a caste or hierarchy. But then they allude to them in these stories where someone has a mistake in his file and Kim Jong-il discovers it and fixes it and basically restores him to the correct caste. So that certainly is a very big key on whether you can join the military or not. I mean, at the bottom, it's a conscript military. I mean, the leadership exists for a very long time. These marshals are 70 or 80 years old. I mean, it... You know, the, I mean, the oldest leadership had been loyal to Kim Il-sung. I mean, there's now turnover. Basically, Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un understand the military is the true power source, as well as security services. And security services watch over the military. So there's always a tension there to make sure there's always somebody watching, you know, somebody else. Right. Back here in the fourth row. My name is Stephen Shore. The DDR got a fair amount of income by selling some of its citizens to the Federal Republic. Why hasn't the North Korean government attempted the same thing? Attempted what? I'm sorry? Selling its citizens to the South. The same way that the I mean, I, I don't think they, they're big fans of selling anything. I mean, they're against commerce in any sense. And they have this partnership with the South, this, this uh, economic zone, um, where basically the, the, southern, the, the South runs it, but all the money is funneled through the North, and, and everyone's desperate to work there. But they shut that down for at least a brief period during the um, turmoil last year with the South. The third row, back here. And, and the, just one other thing, the well-being of the citizenry is not really of interest to the regime. Kim Jong-il said having too many people makes socialism difficult. Because they don't, they don't have a pool of dissidents. I mean, this, the East Germany was a liberal society compared to North oh, Korea. by far, yeah. I mean, in the North, I mean, if you would be a dissident, you're in the camp or you're dead. And so we don't know of kind of, there's no, there's no Solzhenitsyn. I mean, a Solzhenitsyn would be dead. I mean, so that, it's just a much more ruthless, 
you know, system in which you don't allow anything like that to even exist. It's not, and any hard currency you got would not be worth the risk to the regime. Yeah, everyone in the country has to have photographs of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il on their wall in their, in their house, and nothing else can be in that wall. Everyone in the country has to wear a badge with one of the leaders on them at all times, starting from when you're a kid. So the idea that you would be a dissident against their, your god king is not only politically foolish, it's also literally heretical. Uh, my name is Jo Yong Jung. I'm an intern from the National Endowment for Democracy. My question is that after thoroughly observing the life of Kim Jong-il, do you think whether there's been a juncture or point that could have made the status quo other than it is now or if not better? That, that, that's a great question. It was not a given that Kim Jong-il was going to take over for his father. In fact, his uncle uh, was in the running and that's part of why the personality cult got so big. Kim Jong-il and his uncle were competing to see who could praise Kim Il-sung. Uh, the greater. And in 1980, when he got named as official successor to, to Kim Il-sung, there was a huge uproar in the second world because the idea that a communist would have this kind of hereditary monarchy was just such anathema to people who were at least, you know, mouthing the platitudes of Marxism at that point. Um, where there's, you know, there was an assassination attempt on him. Uh, but the thing is, I, I don't, well, here's the thing. If during the famine, during the nineties, if you're willing to let 10% of your population starve, to maintain your grip on power, I don't know what it's going to take to get you removed from that office. And if Kim Jong-il had been killed, his sister, Kim Hyung-wee, uh, who was the one kind of behind Kim Jong-un, she was there to take up the reins very easily. She carried the, the dynastic blood. And this woman is so ruthless that when her daughter uh, had a boyfriend who was of a bad cast, she drove her daughter to suicide. So this is like Game of Thrones level in humanity and depravity. And the advantage of the bloodline is you feel that your succession will carry forward and your legacy will be protected because the successor, in a sense, owes it to you. This is the Kim family. There's a reason then to preserve it as opposed to a Gorbachev who shows up and takes the whole thing and tosses it aside. Yeah, yeah. in the book, he goes after Gorbachev quite a bit. Uh, that's charlatan. Uh, and they really despised Gorbachev because that started, you know, the U.S., you know, defended attacking Vietnam as part of this domino theory when we found that the opposite is true, that once the first domino fell, the USSR, all those other dominoes fell toward capitalism or at least some kind of market socialism. All right. We're going to have time for a few more questions uh, right here. Third row. Phil Harvey is my name. Is there anything at all, anything at all, that the rest of the world could or should be doing about this humanitarian disaster? I, I did my part. Uh, I, I have, I, you know, I wish I had any kind of answer for you. Uh, all the missile, you know, Kim Jong-il talks about uh, how he needed to turn the nation into a hedgehog where no one and those and the spines of the hedgehog being nuclear missiles where no one is going to attach attack a rolled up hedgehog. And that really is what they've done. They've turned the entire nation into a bunker. They boast about this. So not only do very few nations have influence there, it's even if you wanted to use that influence, what are you going to do and how could that change be affected? I think it's just a very, very dark situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, the question you know, comes up, you know, should you give aid? Should you give food? I mean, it becomes very hard because do you give this to a regime that you know, basically uses everything for its own preservation? You know, who gets the food? I mean, that became one of the issues for the U.S. I mean, does it get diverted to the military? What kind of controls can you put in? What will the North Koreans allow? And I, I think it's very hard to have any government-to-government -government aid, but it becomes very painful. 
It does, I mean, the South spent 10 years pumping about $10 billion into North as part of its sunshine policy, trying to buy change and move the North. And of course, the North is developing a nuclear weapon at the time. If there's any strategy, it would be to have other countries privately, as opposed to, I think, publicly put pressure on China. That is to say, if you want a position of global leadership, this is a problem that needs to be dealt with. And I mean, it's a problem of extraordinary dimensions. It's not only security, it's humanitarian. This is well beyond any kind of normal human rights issues we would have with you or anyone else. And, and try to use that suasion with, with Beijing to say, do something and have that coincide with the US, South Korea, and Japan trying to come up with a better set of incentives to China. But I don't know of much else. I mean, it's very hard to see how we can reach in. These are people willing to have mass starvation to preserve their own power. What do you do? And there's no military option. I mean, any military option means Seoul gets destroyed. It means you know, millions of South Koreans end up dying. And I can assure you the South Koreans don't view that as being a very good option. Uh, so you know, sanctions, we already try. They don't, they're not going to work unless the Chinese would do more. And even there, again, who starves? It's not going to be Kim Jong-un who starves. And the it's sanctions a- were used as an excuse to defend the regime because the Americans want you to starve. So, I mean, th- we just don't have many tools that seem to be very useful. Uh, Steve? Fritzinger, back there. Looking at the U.S. for a minute, somebody had mentioned Team America and 30 Rock. On my way over here, I saw an Axe body spray commercial. I saw that ad. Yeah, that, that parodies this. How did something so horrible ever become such a big joke? Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> I think when something... I think Americans, uh, I got to be careful here. I think when something is incomprehensible, the brain defaults to regarding it as absurd as opposed to, I just haven't done my homework and I don't understand this. And the absurd is ripe for satire and humor. And it's, it takes so much work to unpack my book's 400 pages for, you know, for this reason, it takes so much work to unpack how North Korea got to be what it is today. It's a lot easier to take a visceral look in our kind of Twitter culture and be like, oh, this is just wackiness and dismiss it rather than do the mental homework, especially when you're in opposition to affect any change whatsoever. But it's also much easier to caricature this. I mean, Kim, Jong, you know, Kim Jong-il with his bouffant hair and his, you know, high heels and what, I mean, his big sunglasses, you know, that was not Joseph Stalin. I mean, there, there are differences there and kind of the mass games and the stuff that went on, at least what we would see visually versus Soviet Union, I think that what you have here is just easier to dismiss. That it, you know, we tend to take figures and demonize or you know, turn them into comic figures. Well, this it's you know, Kim Jong Il is the one kind of guy who just looks like well, this, you make fun of him. And I think Dennis Rodman, in some sense, does this with Kim Jong Un. They sit together, and Kim Jong Un goes to an event, and Disney characters dance around him. You know, he doesn't look like a threatening figure. So if you're, then you, it's harder to demonize him. So what you do is you go in another direction, which is to kind of make fun of him and laugh him off. And I, so I think it, part of it, and I don't think that's their strategy, but if it was their strategy, it's worked pretty well. All right, uh, one more question in, in the back, Mrs. Ewing. Um, Michael, you have uh, gotten to know some of the people in North Korea, and they're obviously human beings. Can you tell us some of those stories to kind of end us on a happy note, happier note? Uh, sure. Well, uh, I'll, let's let's get personal. I wrote about this my trip to North Korea for a reason. You know, when I write a book with a celebrity, my job is to get inside their head 
and to get their story from their perspective in, in a coherent, logical way. So I've got a lot of techniques to, you know, breaking people down, not in a nefarious way, but just to get to know them past their facade. And I really wanted to get inside my minder's head. And when I was a kid, my mom grew up under Stalin. Every weekend she would drag me to these like discount clothing stores and I'd spend hours there and I resented her enormously for it. And then going to North Korea and talking to my minder who was you know, 27 at the time or so, um, uh, no, she wasn't, oh, that's wrong. Anyway, so she's rich by North Korean standards. She gets huge tips from the West, but she could never buy anything nice. There's never perfume in the store. There's never nice clothing. There's never something, you know, all the restaurants in Pyongyang have plastic flowers, which we regard as cheap and tacky looking. But you have to remember the best place they have to shop is what would be our equivalent of a 99 cent store with made in China goods. So talking to her and, and seeing her desperate semblance to have some sense of humanity or happiness in, in her life really made me kind of resent my mom not at all anymore because it's like you grew up under this. So it's not a surprise that when you come to America, you're going to be kind of a shopaholic uh, to try to make up for just an upbringing where, you know, we can't have nice things and for no reason whatsoever. Uh, Michael, you have a limited number of these uh, hardback so books. The signed so numbered. First, how many of them did you make and why did you make that many? So there's 666 of these. And it's not for the reason you think. When Kim Jong-il ran for the leadership position, he represented constituency 666. I don't know why he did that. I, when people think I'm making it up, I send the press release from North Korea. So... Whoever wants, there's, I only have four. These are the signed hardcovers. They each come with a page from one of the North Korean books that I bought, that I brought back, uh, used in the making of Dear Reader. All right. So uh, please join us in the Winter Garden. Thank our author, Michael and Doug Bandow, for joining us today. Awesome. Thank you.